The climate is on a knife's edge. The United Nations has this morning released a so-called survival guide for humanity. It's the final warning as it's being described to the planet. Climate scientists from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that clean energy and technology can be exploited to avoid the growing climate disaster. But they also warned a key global temperature goal will probably be missed. Humans are responsible for virtually all global heating over the last 200 years. The climate time bomb is ticking. Is New Zealand pulling its weight? We are one of the largest emitters per capita in the OECD, and our emissions, combined with other smaller countries, adds up to about two-thirds of the world's total. Labour's policy bonfire has left its potential government partners feeling burned. The Greens believe yesterday's announcement was a breach of their cooperation agreement with Labour. And Te Pāti Māori is calling it a concession to climate change deniers. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail... Has the government lived up to its lofty ambitions on climate change? We will take climate change seriously. This is my generation's nuclear-free moment. Is the cost of living crisis overshadowing the need for action on the climate? We have to constantly be looking at the best way of reducing emissions, um, consistent with ensuring that we keep New Zealanders in work and that we keep you know, the cost of living down. It's never a yes or no answer with climate change. There's always, there's always more to be done. Mark Dalda is a senior political reporter at Newsroom who writes a lot about climate change. I don't think that the action we've seen from the government over the past two terms or over any term of parliament ever has been consistent with Jacinda Ardern's proclamation that climate change was the nuclear-free moment for her generation. If you think about the radical and drastic action that we took in relation to nuclear-free, and we haven't seen that on climate change, and there's still a lot more to go before you reach that level of dedication. But what has Labour achieved on climate change since taking office in 2017? The Zero Carbon Act is pretty clearly a really fundamental part of how we do climate policy in New Zealand now. This is a significant piece of legislation for New Zealand because it commits our country to living within 1.5 degrees of global warming and it will be one of the first pieces of legislation in the world to commit a country to do that. Before then we had one target which was our target under the Paris Agreement but we didn't really have a way to achieve that and now the Zero Carbon Act gives us, you know, carbon budgets that step down towards an eventual 2050 goal of net zero uh, CO2 emissions, and it sets us specific targets for agricultural and waste methane emissions, which don't need to get to net zero, but do need to reduce. And it tells us, you know, here's the process by which you can create plans to achieve those targets. We're going to create a climate change commission that gives you independent advice on achieving those targets and on creating those plans. And also, you know, it has components in there around adapting to the impacts of climate change as well. So it's really quite a comprehensive piece of legislation that on its own doesn't necessarily reduce emissions, but makes emissions reductions possible in a way that before it was a lot more of an ad hoc process. And in May last year, the government unveiled its first emissions reduction plan. A plan that sets the direction for climate action here in Aotearoa for the next 15 years. Followed by the National Adaptation Plan. We've designed a planning and management system that ensures that buildings, infrastructure and developments are in the right place. More work is planned for managed retreat and other options for responding to sea level rise and flooding. But when it comes to what has the biggest impact on reducing emissions... 
In terms of the policies that most reduce emissions, as opposed to sort of enabling emissions reductions, I guess you could say, I think the changes the government has made to the emissions trading scheme are, according to all of the modeling that they've done, the, the biggest impact. Um, it's not the stuff that you necessarily see when you're um, going around town and you see a lot more Teslas. You know, that's the visibility of the clean car discount, which makes it easier to buy EVs. Or when you see, you know, new cycle lanes going in, that's transport budget money going towards mode shift. That stuff is really visible. But in terms of what cuts greenhouse gas emissions the most, it's going to be the emissions trading scheme and, and particularly putting a cap on the amount that can be emitted under that scheme. The emissions trading scheme was introduced back in 2008. Polluters measure and report on their emissions and then surrender a tradable return called a New Zealand unit to the government for every tonne of emissions. Over time, the government reduces the number of units supplied into the scheme. Think of it as a game of musical chairs. Each chair represents a unit and the government supply fewer over time. So businesses are incentivized to find ways to reduce emissions, for example, switching a coal boiler to an electric one. In 2020, the government put a cap on the number of units available in the scheme. They used to be unlimited, and now they're not. Prior to there being a, a cap on the emissions trading scheme, you could just go to the government and buy a credit if you wanted for $25. And so there's a lot of credit stockpiled, which means that it has what we call a soft cap. But in theory, there's a limit to the amount of emissions that can happen in the sectors covered by the ETS, which is every sector other than agriculture. And so it's quite an effective tool at being able to slowly over the next few decades, push down those emissions and reduce the amount of legal emissions, essentially. The Climate Change Commission had recommended allowing the price of carbon to increase further, but Cabinet rejected that and kept the current settings, which keep the price of carbon low. Mark explains why Cabinet might have made this decision. The reasoning there was essentially the higher the price in the ETS, the higher the price for a few um, really important basic household costs. So the ETS price factors into fuel prices in particular, but it also more indirectly factors in via fuel prices to food prices. You know, if you've got to truck your apples and pears and fresh greens from one side of the country into the supermarkets, those trucks have to pay the emissions trading price on their fuel. And so the higher that is, the higher the cost of your groceries as well. So the government was sitting there late last year. Inflation is at record levels thinking we really can't afford politically to raise the carbon price and put another cost on households. So they made that decision to keep it lower instead. That's a classic sort of trade-off where they've decided they would protect cost of living at the cost of the climate, and it's something that we've seen more and more over the past few months. The Prime Minister has made cuts, saving a billion bucks now, including some key climate change initiatives that have been ditched. What other things have we seen in terms of cost of living over climate change? In the first round of so-called reprioritization or policy bonfires, as the, the media has taken to calling it. The bonfire of the policies has grown into a towering inferno. Chris Hipkins got rid of the biofuels mandate, which would have required a certain percentage of the fuel sold in New Zealand to be biofuel instead of regular petrol. And that reduces emissions by quite a lot, actually. It's a nice idea using plants to help power our cars, meaning fewer fossil fuels 
which are heating our planet. He got rid of that in the same wave as getting rid of things like hate speech, the social insurance scheme, the media merger. So it didn't really get as much media attention. But that's really the biggest climate policy that Chris Hipkins has overseen, the sort of scrapping of. Most recently, we've, we've seen the Cash for Clunkers scheme go. The Cash for Clunkers scheme that would have paid up to $10,000 to people to wreck their old gas guzzler and replace it with an EV is off to the policy chop shop. That wasn't expected to do as much in terms of reducing emissions, but it was an equity policy to help make it affordable for low-income families to reduce their personal emissions. There's also the social leasing car scheme that's been scrapped as well. So this would have apparently leased cars to people in low-income communities, electric cars, to help with climate change. Tell me about that. Like the Cash for Clunkers one, that's more of an equity one than an emissions reduction policy. It would help reduce emissions, but it's really trying to make those electric vehicles and and plug-in hybrids more accessible for low-income families. So the social leasing scheme would have meant instead of a family owning an old car that pollutes quite a lot, they actually lease a vehicle from a a community organization that's a a greener one because they're leasing it. It's more of an ongoing cost that they pay instead of having to pay the big capital cost up front of buying an e-vehicle. And maybe in the future it would help them actually be able to uh, purchase a vehicle like that uh, in the end. The Greens saw many of their darlings turfed. The Cash for Clunkers initiative scrapped the container return scheme, trashed, and public transport ambitions slowed down. I think the Greens are feeling pretty burnt. I think that they're feeling pretty concerned about the government's progress on climate change. I am really disappointed with some of the choices that were made. It is too slow. The rate of change in reducing climate pollution is too slow. But, you know, from a more cynical, maybe horse race politics perspective, you could say this probably will help them at the election because there are a lot of people, particularly climate-concerned Labour voters, who may consider giving the Greens their vote. Now is the time to shake off the shackles of visionless government and to make good on the promise that we have made to current and future generations. So, actually, not a bad week for the Greens, but uh, from a policy perspective, you know, they've taken a lot of hits recently, and um, they'll be looking for, hopefully, some wins at the budget. So, has Labour failed when it comes to delivering action on climate change? I I think the failure is not necessarily in getting rid of policies, because you can look at policies and say they don't work or the costs of them are not worth the benefits of them. Um, And that happens all the time in a lot of arenas. But climate change is, a, I guess, a zero-sum game in some ways, where if we were planning to reduce emissions by a million tonnes with the biofuel mandate, for example, which is what we were planning to do in the the next few years, if we're not doing that anymore, we still need to meet the same climate target, so we need to find a million tonnes of emissions somewhere else. The question for Chris Hipkins is, can he find policies that do that, but that also tick his box of helping cost of living? And in the long term, I think the answer is yes, there are lots of policies that have both climate and cost of living benefits, but those tend to take a while to actually bed in. In the short term, I'm not sure there are that many options for him in plugging that gap. So when evaluating the record that we've seen here, I don't think tossing out climate policies is inherently bad as long as you replace them. And I think the disappointing thing has been he hasn't offered any new climate policies since becoming prime minister, but he's gutted a lot of old ones. And so, yes, he will announce some new ones, probably around the May budget, but it, it, it feels a bit hypocritical and a bit hard to take him at his word in, in the meantime if all he's doing is cutting things and, and not offering anything new.
Dairy NZ is standing its ground and asking for a major shake-up of the government's proposed emissions pricing scheme. The policy was released for consultation last month following input uh, from Hewaka Ekanoa, a group of sector leaders. But some representatives say, as it stands, the scheme will squeeze farmers unfairly out of the sector. The other thing that I think Labor's struggled with is the uh, pressure from the farming and agricultural communities. Our methane emissions are very high. So what's happening there, and is that a big pressure point for Labour? Yeah, I think it is a big political pressure point. I think it doesn't factor so much into cost of living for a couple of reasons, one of which is that the scheme isn't anticipated to come into effect until 2025 anyways, and so by then we kind of expect our inflation issue to be behind us. But politically, it's a big headache. Basically, the the scheme that's been proposed is, is really similar to what the sector themselves came up with, and that's a levy on greenhouse gas emissions from the sector. Um, the money that's raised by that levy goes into uh, research and development, as well as paying farmers who take on new technologies that help reduce emissions, so that not only do they get the benefit of not paying the levy for the emissions that they've reduced, but they actually get uh, extra incentive payments as well. And that's not how the rest of the economy is treated. It is a special sort of treatment for farmers, but the sector has been quite reluctant to adopt the scheme. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One of it is just politics. When they agreed to do Hewaka Ekonoa in the first place. You know, Labour's poll numbers were looking up. And when, by the time the, the government announced its option in October last year, you know, it was looking pretty clear that you'd have a, a national government, at least on those polling numbers at the time. And so easy enough to make a big fuss out of it. And if national gets elected, hey, you don't have to do it at all. I'm really frustrated to know that the world has taken no action, really, on climate change or, or no significant action uh, for 30 years or more. That's Professor James Renwick, a climate scientist at Victoria University of Wellington. He's also on the Climate Change Commission. He's talking about the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I'm concerned, I'm, I'm a bit stressed about the future, but, uh, you know, in terms of the science of the report... It's great stuff. So, yeah, it's good to see it come out, even though the message is pretty grim. Let's just talk about New Zealand's record on climate change. What's it achieved since, you know, climate change kind of came to the forefront of government policy? I think New Zealand's achieved a lot at the policy level. Um, New Zealand negotiators were instrumental in getting the Paris Agreement structure set up, actually. So at the level of the United Nations, New Zealand's had a big role to play in shaping how countries around the world approach action on climate change. But And in this country, uh, certainly with the, the current Labor government, um, they managed to pass the so-called Zero Carbon Act in 2019. And we have all sorts of other things happening legislatively, you know, the Resource Management Act's on the way out and there's going to be a bunch of new legislation, including sort of climate change policy that will help shape how, you know, local government and central government work together. There's been a, a lot happening at that level and, you know, compared to how things were even five years ago, this country is in, in really good shape to take the action we need. But when it comes down to the actual action, we haven't seen emissions of greenhouse gases reduce at all in this country. And in fact, carbon dioxide, which is the most important greenhouse gas, emissions of that have gone up quite a lot in the last 20 or 30 years. And a lot of that actually is from uh, 
the likes of you and me driving our cars. The transport sector has really blossomed, you might say, since the 19, early 1990s, and we're emitting heaps more carbon dioxide from our cars and trucks now than we were back then. So that's that's one of the main focuses of the policy and the emissions reduction plan is to get on top of what's happening in the transport sector. Okay, yeah, so we've got all these policies and frameworks in place, but actually getting down to it and getting these changes made on a day-to-day basis seems a bit hard. Well, it is, and it's it's not so much the reality in this country because we have so much renewably powered electricity, but it is true that fossil fuels do power the world's economy and they power a fair bit of our economy, certainly almost all of our transport sector and a fair bit of... A uh, fair bit of industrial heat and, and, you know, the Huntley Power Station, we do burn some coal to generate some of our electricity. So our society, our economy has grown up over, well, centuries really, but let's say the last hundred years, boosted along by burning coal and oil in various forms. And it's it's not easy <laughs> to pull out of that. You know, We've got all this infrastructure, all these cars on the roads, all these petrol stations, et cetera, et cetera. They've been developed and put in place over a very long time, and we have an awful lot of all of the stuff that we suddenly need to move away from, and it's it's really hard to do that. I would say because it's so hard, we should have got started a lot earlier than we have, but, but at least we're getting started now, and I think once we get going on this, maybe it won't be so hard after all. Maybe we will be able to make some quite rapid changes realising that we have to. Mark Dolder says there doesn't necessarily need to be a trade-off between policies that help ease the cost of living and benefit the climate. Basically, it's addressing um, household costs that are climate-related, right? And so you think about things like energy costs and fuel costs. Well, if people can get to work on a more reliable public transport network, they're not going to need to pay as much on petrol. So investments into transport systems, into getting people out of private vehicles and onto public transport or bikes or even helping them decarbonize their vehicles so that their running costs of their vehicles are much lower. Those are good climate and cost of living policies. On the energy cost side of things, you know, helping households reduce how much they're paying for electricity and how much electricity kind of wastage there is is really helpful, particularly as we get into winter and we're burning more fossil fuels to keep the lights on. The less electricity we use, the better for the climate. So that can be things like energy efficiency upgrades, but it can also be things like subsidizing solar panels for low-income families who are just paying outright to put them on the roofs of state houses so that those people who are living there actually have vastly reduced energy bills and we're displacing some of that fossil fuel electricity generation with renewable sources. Would you say those were short-term and long-term kind of initiatives? Or I think those are more of the long-term thing, just because it can take a while to really set up. You know, making a, a more reliable public transport system, that takes a real long time. Um, the subsidies for solar panels, you know, that can get started pretty quickly, but it takes a while to really reach the scale where the emissions reductions are as significant as, say, the sort of stuff you're going to get out of the biofuel mandate. So on the list of policies that can really reduce emissions sharply in the short term, I don't see that many options that also address cost of living concerns. The other thing is, like recent polls, like for example the One News Kentar poll, we asked which issues will be most likely to influence your voting at the election. Nearly half of all voters said it was the cost of living. 
The next biggest issue was climate change. Just over one in ten people saying it was their key issue. Do people just not care about climate change? Is cost of living really on the priority list of so many people that they've forgotten about climate change? I think um, it depends on how you ask the question. So when you ask people to name just one thing, then they'll name cost of living because that affects them in the wallet, whereas climate change, you know, I think views are changing a little bit with things like the cyclone, but for the most part, people don't think it's as personal to them. If you ask them to name what are the issues you're most concerned about, climate change tends to pretty consistently rank up there alongside things like the economy, uh, hospitals, and, and law and order. On the one hand, that tells us people are concerned about climate change. It might not be their number one concern, but they are concerned about it. To what degree that translates into sort of a new kind of climate-focused politics is unclear to me. I think there's a requirement that parties talk about climate change now and that they say that they have a plan to deal with climate change. I think climate change denial is not going to be accepted by the electorate in the way it might have been a decade or two ago. But, you know, in this conversation, we've talked a little bit about the emissions trading scheme as, as the most important climate policy in the country, but it's not one that people understand really well. And so we have a bit of a disconnect here between people's concerns about climate change and their understanding of climate policy, which is understandable. You know, we we can't expect everyone to be a policy expert in every area. But what it means is that parties can probably get away with paying lip service to climate change this election. And that will address people's concerns, even if their policies aren't actually substantively robust or, or, or seriously going to deal with the problem. As a climate scientist, what kind of action do you want to see now? I want to see global emissions of greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, starting to reduce, getting onto that downward track. And not not just a little blip like we saw during the COVID lockdowns, but an actual decrease and an actual plan to keep decreasing. We are... Yeah, playing dice with the future of humanity here, with the future of civilization, and the level of seriousness of the action from governments around the world just does not match up to the risks that we face, that we know we face, that the IPCC describes that we face. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. William Saunders engineered this podcast. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Mark Dalda and James Renwick. Ma Tewa.